This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to The Hash on Coindesk TV. I'm Zach Seward. I'm coming to you live from Colorado on the sidelines of the ETH Denver Conference. I'm joined today by Christy Harkin and David Morris. We've got a lot to get to, so let's do this thing. David, you're going to take us into a couple of items from Binance. Take it away. Yeah, um, and Binance has been kind of an ongoing article of interest for the past couple of months, kind of in the wake of the FTX collapse and a lot of skepticism around centralized exchanges. The first part of this two-part story is kind of the less interesting, which is just that three U.S. senators have sent a public letter to Binance asking for a lot of information that, frankly, they're probably not going to get, but alleging with some cause that Binance has enabled a lot of criminal activity and also concealed uh, financial information from customers, which we're going to talk about more in the second part of our first half here. I'm not going to unpack it entirely, but we did get a response from a Binance spokesperson to that letter, which uh, frankly echoes some of the issues that we have seen in communications from Binance recently, which is that they are fairly vague, um, hand-wavy. I think that the funny part about this statement is that it says, we look forward to correcting the record. We're not going to do it now, but we look forward to correcting the record at some point. And that has been, in general, Binance's attitude, and we'll, we'll see more of that in a bit. The one thing I would note is that of the three senators, one of them is Elizabeth Warren, who, frankly, whatever you feel about her in other realms, has sort of burned some of her powder as a crypto critic already and not necessarily to the most effective use. It's sometimes a little bit harder to take things seriously when it comes from Warren, but it is true that Binance has left a lot of unanswered questions. You know, it remains to be seen how much they can stay out of U.S. regulators' grasps, but they're certainly being reached for. One of the things that really stood out to me with the way that Binance has been responding to this is there is a lot of, as you say, misdirection, but there's also a lot of suspicion of the media. And one of the things that, you know, in the years that I think that you and I have covered crypto, David, is that there are some serious problems with companies and the way that they deal with the media in the first place, where they don't give straight answers or they're not accessible to answer questions. And when you do ask and try to do a complete article that presents both sides, they come to you after you've already published the article with new information that, you know, they should have been upfront with in the first place. They also, and I've seen this with many companies, and we're seeing a lot of evidence of this in Binance as well, they don't have their message straight in the first place. You have person A saying one thing, which contradicts what person B is saying, who is maybe looking at it from a different angle from person C, who then says something completely different, which ends up with a very confusing and hard to swallow narrative. And I'm seeing this in Binance right now, but this has been, I think, a trend. And then they get all upset when mm -hmm. we have journalists who come in and write articles that say win poke awards and take down entire <laughs> industries as we've done here at Coindesk. And, you know, it only happens when we ask questions. Are we publishing these articles? Do we want people to read them? Absolutely. But there's a reason why journalists ask questions and there's a reason why we write the stories we write. And this is one of the things that companies are just, if you can't answer the questions, then, you know, mm -hmm. maybe there is something wrong that needs to be addressed. What do you think, yeah. Zach? 
Yeah, well stated on the media angle for sure. I want to just zoom out a little bit. I think it's, you know, it's hunting season and it is big game season and U.S. regulators are doing their best to hit that target that's sitting squarely on the back of CZ and Binance here and now. Whether or not they have sort of jurisdictional abilities to go and do this may not matter. Obviously, a little Mm -hmm. bit of this is grandstanding, but I think U.S. regulators and lawmakers are really looking for a big win on crypto and they see no bigger opportunity to do that than with Binance. So the idea that this scrutiny is here is something that I think is obviously in reaction to the FTX thing. They want to see if they can get ahead of the next one. And they sort of have this hunch that Binance may be that next big one that could leave investors in the U.S. and beyond in trouble. So that's, I think, is part of it. And I think, you know, David, you're right to sort of point out that Liz Warren has not maybe been the best, the most reliable narrator on crypto issues of late. So I think that is interesting also to flag that she's among this cohort of lawmakers asking for a bit more clarity. Interesting to see what the correcting of the record looks like here, but I'll toss it back to you, David. I will just make two last comments about this part of the story, and then we'll move on to talk perhaps in more granular detail about media. Somebody might be able to correct me here, but I was looking and the most recent information that I could find was that Binance does, among other things, still have uh, zero KYC options for users. They lowered their withdrawal limits recently to a fairly low level, but that doesn't mean it's zero. And at the same time, if you have no KYC, you then can get the equivalent of a centralized exchange Sybil attack. If you can make one non-KYC account, you can make 100. Um, So there are real grounded reasons for these concerns. Obviously, Binance has also engaged in some regulatory arbitrage by being a little bit opaque about where it's actually based, where it's regulated over the years. So it's important to remember that, that Binance has kind of made its bed here. So even while people are kind of fighting the last war and paranoid because of FTX, um, as, as a great man once said, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. Uh, and Binance could very well be after your money. To that point, we're going to switch over to our next story here, which has to do with a series of reports culminating in a Forbes investigation recently. There are a lot of details here, and it's very easy to get wrong. But the gist of it is that Forbes found on-chain evidence of a $1.8 billion transfer out of a wallet that was supposed to be the backing peg for one of Binance's wrapped tokens, This, in this case, BUSDC. And according to Forbes, that left circulating BUSDC that was unbacked, or at least did not appear to be backed based on Binance's on-chain accounting. And then what happened was, over the course of about two days, we got a series of some contradictory or unclear claims from Binance about what was actually going on. They denied that there was any risk to customer funds or that stablecoins were left unbacked, but they still haven't provided a really compelling and clear explanation. Specifically, in one statement, they said that the moves identified by Forbes were part of an internal rebalancing. And then the very next day, CZ got on Twitter and said, no, they're actually uh, customer accounts or a customer transaction. So there is a scenario where those two explanations are not incompatible. And there are definitely innocuous explanations that are still on the table for what Forbes found. But their communication has been so slapdash and and inconsistent that it it raises questions in its own right about a lot of different things. And, uh, and, And we talked about the attitude towards journalism, and that was certainly on display here as well. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's a bit hard to entirely swallow their explanations when it also comes with a heaping side of uh, we don't want to answer questions at all. Zach. 
Yeah, I mean, this is sort of like reminiscent of what we saw with the wrapped BUSD thing, right? Where, you know, there's BUSD that's issued by Paxos and it's a stable coin that lives on Ethereum. But then there's also this other BUSD that's on BNB chain that's ostensibly wrapped. And I think there was some past reporting that occurred that suggested that there was like a billion dollar or more discrepancy between how much actual BUSD there was and how much wrapped BUSD there was. And now we're seeing something similar with the wrapped USDC stablecoin here, right? So this Mm -hmm. does sort of seem to indicate that there are some shenanigans afoot when it comes to these uh, BNB native stablecoins relative to the, the bigger brands that they're attached to. And I think that to me is what stands out in this report is that, you know, whether that's creative accounting or shifting between stablecoins or, you know, something maybe a bit more nefarious, I think that's still to be determined. But it does indicate that this is not just unique to the BUSD story that we saw earlier. It was also potentially happening with the wrapped version of USDC, which I thought was the interesting sort of revelation that yeah. surfaced here beyond the response. But yeah, lo- lots to unpack in this one. I was just going to, um, you know, sort of flesh out what Zach alluded to, which is that one of the real anxieties here and you know, perhaps Forbes went a little bit hard, as I said, maybe fighting the last war, comparing this to FTX. But it's still not completely out of, out of range that there could be rehypothecation going on here. A lot of the sends that were identified were to trading firms and to market makers and uh, other, other uh, market structure participants who could have been doing anything with it. And it, it's hard to provide any clarity there from public data. And so we're relying on, on those actors and we're not getting clear answers from them. So again, there's no evidence specifically that this is what's happening, but the anxiety is that it's something like FTX and they are loaning out stablecoin collateral. Personally, I don't think that's what's happening, but the appearance is there and it's on the table. Christy, go for it. Very minor point here, but sort of like going back to what I was saying about answering questions, there's a lot of weird ins and outs when it comes to how you are going to be accounting new forms of money like this and where it moves to and how things move around and where, you know, oh, it's all on a blockchain or we have proof of reserves because of whatever technology that people don't really fully grasp yet. And it's a lot easier to sort of misdirect and use terms that are either crypto gobbledygook in order to obfuscate what's going on or to simply use terms like, oh, it's just simply moving things around. And rebalancing uh, so in this case, down is the term to whoever it is, is it asking the question and putting it in a way it's like, well, you wouldn't understand it anyway. Just think of it like moving things around because it's too hard to explain. And that, I think, is going to cause troubles for anybody who is trying to figure out what's going on in this this case and in many others in crypto. Just to, okay, I'll be self-aggrandizing here for a moment. Because that, that tendency to give incomplete answers or to not give total information, that may be aimed at more mainstream media outlets where, you know, we don't want to confuse your little brains. But A, Forbes already did some really gritty reporting on this specific story that gets into the weeds and shows that they clearly understand what's going on. And B, when you're talking to us, Coindesk, not to overstate the case, but we understand this stuff better than the people running the companies. And I don't, <laughs> I, I don't think that's a crazy thing to claim at this point, because we've watched multiple companies crash and burn after not answering our questions about their operations. And so if you're Binance, it is no longer a tenable position to say, we don't have to answer these questions fully. You got to get it out there. You got to give us the information or, uh, you know, we're going to publish things like what we published yesterday, pointing out the failure of your communication strategy. 
I mean, for me, the word rehypothecation triggers recollections of some early Celsius reporting from way back when the CoinDesk published. But anyway. Calling all early stage crypto, blockchain and Web3 startups, teams and builders. Apply to CoinDesk PitchFest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha Passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com slash pitchfest. Silvergate, this is a bank that has been in the news a lot today. I think we have three separate stories on Coindesk about it. So Silvergate is a U.S.-based financial institution and Federal Reserve member bank, and it's been the go-to bank, the go-to crypto-friendly bank for the past, I don't know what, six years maybe? It's been around a long time and one of the first banks to really get into Bitcoin and to be friendly to crypto companies. But lately it, well, like everything else, got hit by the FTX collapse, and it's been in some trouble. So we found out today, Coinbase gets no longer using Silvergate to facilitate dollar payments for its institutional customers and is switching over to Signature Bank now. It says that it switched from Silvergate out of an abundance of caution, quote unquote, in a tweet, adding that it has minimal exposure to Silvergate. The stablecoin issuer Paxos has also jumped ship from Silvergate, discontinuing transfers and wires to its account with the crypto-friendly bank. And as a result of all of this, it's losing, well, traction. So shares of Silvergate plunged 45% early Thursday on questions about its survival due to losses and numerous regulatory issues that have arisen. And It was downgraded to underweight from neutral by JP Morgan. It's had problems just with uh, having a lot of back and forth between short sellers and then, of course, all of the FTX collapse. So this is this is a sort of a sad thing for crypto in general, really, because it has been sort of a mainstay in the industry. I just wanted to, well, agree that like this is a, a real bummer for crypto and I think that one way to think about it is Silvergate suffering a bit of an innovator's dilemma fallout here. They were, they were among the first to get involved in the space, and they did see some benefit from it, but now they're, now they're catching the downside. I'm looking at their stock chart, and one thing that I think is worth pointing out is that I, I'm not going to get this exactly right. I, I think they, I be, it looks like they IPO'd in about 2019 or at least that was when they first listed by whatever means. And we're only just now getting back to being a little bit below. This is a, this is a shorter term chart right now. But if you look at the three-year chart, we're only just now getting back to where their stock is a little bit below their IPO price, which obviously stinks, but they, they enjoyed a lot of upside during the crypto bubble. And so, you know, it's the double-edged sword here. The thing about Coinbase and, and um, I forget, was it Paxos? turning away from them is, is really unfortunate, but um, it, it's also part of the kind of cascading failure risk of, of being involved in this, right? Coinbase doesn't want to be on Silvergate anymore if they're getting a bad name, even though they're seemingly only getting a bad name because of other crypto companies failing. So it, it, it seems like a bit of a, a negative spiral that hopefully they pull out of, but we'll see. Zach? Yeah, the thing that stood out to me is like that regulatory filing. There, there was a fresh filing that said there was regulatory inquiries and investigations that the company was looking into that will maybe dictate the future health of that company. I think the market was really quite spooked by that. 
And it really does sort of go back to that joint statement from a bunch of uh, US sort of banking regulators. I think it was in early January that said that banks really need to be wary of the risks inherent in working and serving crypto firms. And you kind of see this sort of rearing its ugly head. I think Silvergate has sort of become kind of ensnared in what I think is a push from, I think it was, I believe it was the OCC, the Fed, and another agency said, hey, you know what? Like banking in the crypto sector is, is, is bad, watch out. And I think what's alluded to in this recent filing is that those investigations, those inquiries are you know, landing at Silvergate's door, right? This has been a company, as you mentioned, Christy, that's been serving the crypto sector for a number of years now. And here again, in the wake of some of the FTX implosion, regulators in the US are taking it upon themselves to look more deeply at some of these banking partners and providers. Obviously, you hear sort of, you know, Operation Choke Point 2.0 and some fears and concerns that maybe the regulatory apparatus in the U.S. sees the best way to sort of stifle crypto innovation by targeting the banks that are already highly federally regulated. And this may be coming to pass with Silvergate, in addition mm-hmm. to some of its, um, you know, recent business stumbles. The regulatory sort of filing aspect that came out, I think it was yesterday, definitely spoke to me, caught my eye. Yeah, I would just quickly point out that there is some disagreement about the seriousness of this Operation Choke Point 2.0. That is not any kind of official narrative. That's something that people are projecting a little bit and, and might or might not actually come all the way down the pike. So just that's worth pointing out. All right, let's change gears. Let's talk about something maybe a bit more pleasant for the crypto natives in the crowd. Let's talk about Coindesk and Art Blocks. They're teaming up on a cool thing related to the Consensus Conference, which is upcoming in April in Texas. and. They're releasing a thing called Microcosms. It's a way to supercharge in-person events with NFT ticketing and more. Here to talk about it is Artblock Chief Marketing Officer, Hannah Siegel-Gardner, and Head of Coindesk Studios, Sam Ewan. Hey there, how's it going? Great, Hi. good to see you. Awesome. So Hannah, give me the pitch. What is Microcosms? What's the point? What is this going to enable for conference attendees, consensus, and potentially more down the road? Well, I'm going to have to quickly pass this over to Sam because this is really his brainchild. Artblocks Engine, which is part of Artblocks, is powering the generative drop that is about to happen, I think, in 45 minutes. But really, this is Sam's dream oh that my. we've been able to um, make come alive. Sam, give me, give me <clears> the pitch. What's the point of this thing? Why, why, are we, why are we getting away from traditional ticketing models? Great question. So the premise that we're working with is that ticketing models are a bit broken. I sort of blame Ticketmaster, as a lot of people do. But, you know, in 2010, they merged with Live Nation, created a real monopoly. I found a study that said last year, over the top 40 concerts, 28% of the ticket price was fees. You know, we know that that experience itself is kind of getting worse and worse for the consumer, you know, waiting in lines, the resale market, all of that stuff. And so we sort of believe that Ticketing and the blockchain go really well together because you can reward loyalty instead of making loyalty kind of this extractive opportunity. And that's why we actually came up with Microcosms, which is the idea that you can sort of own this amazing generative piece of art that we'll let Hannah talk about kind of what what generative is in a second. But that by owning it, we then sort of airdrop you all of this additional value that really makes the most for the conference itself. So not only do you get three years of passes to consensus at a much cheaper price than you would get normally, for coming, but we have things like you can get a booth on the show floor, a speaking slot at Consensus, you can get meetings with VCs, a media buy on Coindesk.com, um, all the things that sort of help you navigate the crypto industry. We kind of baked in as our into a reward system that is sort of ex- exciting. And our goal is just to get more people to both come to the event, but also to like explore what NFTs can power when you utilize these unique uh, mechanisms. I heard somebody say something about the generative aspect, so I'll set you up a bit. 
I'm a real tech head on the NFT side. I'm, I'm very pro on-chain generative archival work. And I know that Artblocks in general is, is pretty aligned with that element of, of NFTs. So tell our audience, what is a generative NFT? How does that differ from, and I know this is a little bit sidelined to the main point of the project here, but I think it's important. How is that different from, uh, let's just call it a monkey JPEG? And sort of on the tech side, how are these, how are these different from maybe bog standard NFTs? Well, I think the biggest difference is that generative NFTs are part of really a family of artworks that are a part of a drop. So what you'll see with what Sam was talking about that we're powering with Coindesk and Consensus is that there will be a unique output every time that the algorithm is deployed. And what's really cool about what Sam and Coindesk and Consensus are doing is that the artwork is almost independent from the ticket. So you get both of those kind of incredible assets that are going to be beautiful together in one kind of package for the user. I sort of believe that generative art is the native expression of the blockchain when it comes to art, because the algorithm is in the smart contract. And, you know, it's sort of by me minting a piece and an artist having an algorithm, we together create something amazing. And again, Artblocks, I think, is the premier partner for that kind of thing, which is why we sort of work with them and they've been incredible. And I think that that is something that, that the crypto crowd should know more about because it is something that not only is there an aesthetic value, but I think that there's a kind of communal value in us supporting a, a sort of a medium that grew out of this thing that we're all trying, trying to build together. And this is more, of, again, a sort of a techie question of just the nuts and bolts of how this is going to work for the user. So I've been to the site and it says, you know, you go in and you, you can mint one of these NFT tickets. What are they going for? What are you expecting them to go for? Is this something that is accessible to the average person who just wanders in? I mean, I could talk about our side of it. The price is 1.5 ETH, which right now is about $2,400, which is an expensive entry point. But also right now, if you were to just buy a single pro pass ticket to consensus, you're spending about $1,900. So you're baking in your next three years at a discount. So we, we calculate at the early bird price, it's about $3,600 in value just in the tickets themselves. But it's really all of these additional benefits like that are on screen right now that we, we have 350 different benefits here that because all of the data is on chain, we can hold a snapshot. At some point, we can then look at that snapshot and then airdrop all of these existing benefits to people. And as, as you can see, some of them have values of $25. Some of them have values of $19,000. And what we also like is the idea that you can keep this amazing work of art that Fahad Karim, our artist, has spent a long time working on with us. But in addition, everything, all of these benefits get airdropped as additional. So you can decide, I want to use it. I can give it to someone or I can actually sell it. So the, the person who's lucky enough, for example, to get the Piranha Pass or the, the booth on the expo floor, someone else might actually have better use for that and can say, offer them, hey, you know what? I see it's a $19,000 value. What if I gave you two ETH for it? And the person can make a decision to, to decide that, which really allows the idea of self-sovereign assets and, and being able to chart your, your future. And you know, if I stood in line for the Taylor Swift concert, I never got that opportunity to kind of sort of benefit from my ticket unless I resold the ticket itself. So we love the idea as well that people get to collect art, keep art, and then just by holding over the three-year arc, get this, this benefit. And again, I think, you know, Hannah and her team and the rest of our partners have been incredible in sort of helping us envision how this could come to life. 
Very cool, very cool. Thanks for walking us through that. That's Sam from Coindesk Studios. We got Hannah from Artblocks. A very cool thing going live today at coindesk.com slash consensus NFT. That's it for the show today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Zach. We got Christy. We got David. We'll be back. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 